Good morning, church. Please take a Bible, the Bible in the pews, if you don't have your own, and turn to 2 Samuel chapter 12. I will give you the page reference for that when I find it. That's page 487. The passage that we're going to deal with today is in Psalms 51, but this gives us a historical context for Psalms 51. Let's uh, just have a word of prayer before we begin. Gracious Father, we thank you once again for being a God of love and mercy, grace. We, think we can see that very clearly in Jesus coming to die for us on the cross. We can see it in the gift of your Holy Spirit. May he be with us throughout this worship service. May he wait, make your word come alive uh, in our hearts, in our minds, and help us to learn from the, the mistakes of other people, other Christians. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. In 2 Samuel chapter 11, you have the story of King David high on his throne, at the peak of his career, and he decides to sin. And it was a big one. It was a doozy. It was a public, it became a public sin. It went from a private sin to a public sin. And those of you that know the story, how he saw this woman, he took this woman, even though she belonged to another man, and then he had her husband killed, and then he tried to cover his tracks with lies and deceits and so on and so forth, tried really hard to keep it quiet. No way was it going to be kept quiet. Uh, I'm sure it didn't take very long for the, the gossip to start. And then... Perhaps a year later, God moves on the prophet Nathan, who of course must have known what had gone on, but for whatever reasons had bided his time until God told him to move, and then he moved, and then he confronted King David, and that's where we pick it up in, verse, in chapter 12. The Lord sent Nathan to David, and when he came to him, he said, There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb that he had bought. He raised it, it grew up with him and his children, and it shared his food. It drank from his cup and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. Now I'm not sure what tone of voice he used. 
And I don't know how you feel when you are confronted with such blatant sin. It's not a good feeling, is it? But I suppose it's a better feeling than dying in your sins. So take your choice of which medicine you want. You are the man, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, I anointed you king over Israel, I delivered you from the hand of Saul, I gave you your master's house and your master's wives, I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if all of this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, took his wife to be your own, you killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says, out of your own household, I'm going to bring calamity upon you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you, and he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret. But I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. And then after a year of dealing with a guilty conscience, feeling that God is so far away, not knowing how to pray, how to worship, then we hear these important words from David. Let's read them together, verse 13. I have sinned against the Lord. Confession. Conviction first, even if it takes a year. And then confession. So David confesses, genuinely confesses, his sin. Now, we might conclude, well, it's pretty hard to wriggle out of this one. Pretty much all Israel knows what's going on. But it seems that this confession is sincere. And then, of course, the rest of the chapter talks about what Nathan says to him and so on. I have sinned against the Lord. Well, didn't he sin against Bathsheba? Didn't he sin against Uriah the Hittite? But all sin is ultimately against God. That's who we are sinning against. And he is the one that we need to make amends to. Nothing that David does or could do would bring Uriah back. Maybe he could do something for Bathsheba but he certainly couldn't do anything for Uriah. And unless the Lord decides to resurrect Uriah, then nothing can help Uriah in this situation. But the fact that David confesses is huge. And I want to take you to Psalms 51. Because Psalms 51 must have been written very, very soon after he confessed his sin. So look at Psalms 51, and we're going to go through this together. Psalms 51, 
He says there, have mercy on me. Would be nice if he had my God, but maybe he doesn't feel that close to God at this time. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. If we would have carried on reading in Samuel, Nathan would have said, God has forgiven your sin. I think it's hard for us to understand, especially with big, gross sins of this type, of somebody who is a spiritual leader, not just a political leader, but also a spiritual leader too, it's pretty hard for us to believe how keen God is to forgive. But that's what the whole Bible teaches. So God is standing on tiptoe with bated breath, just waiting to forgive. He really, really wants to do that. That's something to do with his nature, something to do with the grace and the mercy, the heart of God. And the sooner we grasp that, the better. Not so we can take advantage of that. That would be a wrong conclusion. But so that you and I can manifest more a forgiving and merciful spirit ourselves. Because there will always be somebody, somewhere, who sins against us. And we're encouraged to forgive them. How many times? Well, without limit. So he asks for mercy, a prayer for mercy. He's, he's falling on the unfailing love of God and the compassion of God. Blot out my transgressions, wash away my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. When it uses that word blot out, it should have special meaning for Seventh-day Adventists. The Bible teaches that God has a record of everything that we do in this life, right? Exodus chapter 32 and verse 32 and 33. Moses, great leader, spiritual leader, says, now, but now, please forgive their sin, but if not, then blot me out of the book that you have written. And the Lord replied to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. And there are many texts in Scripture that talk of a record being kept. And that everything we say and do and think is recorded. There is nothing that you and I can do that is done in a corner without God knowing it. Be sure your sins will what? Find you out. So David is caught. David confesses, genuinely confesses. Some people say, you know, it's really not fair. The sins that Saul did were not as bad as what David did. Well, I don't know how we measure the life of Saul against the life of David. But what we do see with David is a spirit of repentance. Genuine, re genuine repentance. What we tend to focus on is the 
the bad things that people do. I'll never forget when Jim Baker, you remember Jim and Tammy? Jim's still alive as far as I know. Tammy passed away. But Jim was finally caught out, whatever he had done. I'm not sure of all the details. Don't need to know that. But then you see him uh, weeping and maybe being handcuffed and, and taken away. And one of his biggest critics, Jimmy Swaggart, um, was also caught out. And it was very, no one can be more dramatic than Jim, than, than, than uh, Swaggart. And so there he is on, pretty much on national TV. The tears are just flowing. And it's like a public confession. But he uses these words against you only. Have I sinned? And we scratch our heads and we think, whoa, this is pretty big. What's really going on here? And of course, if it's genuine, whether the cameras are on you or not, if it's genuine, then God is keen to acknowledge the confession. And really, the work of confession and the work of, the whole, and the work of repentance is the work of the Holy Spirit. So I don't want to ever give the impression, I don't think the Bible tries to do that, that we have to work up confession. And we have to work up repentance. We have to, if we have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us, we, we expect the Holy Spirit, that in, in fact in the New Testament teaches that, He is given to convict us of sin. And the sooner we're convict, convicted is maybe the sooner we confess and the sooner that we can feel the presence of God again in our lives. David certainly needed that. I don't know what your worst sin is, but whatever it is, I bet it's never been as public as this one. And then another question that comes to my mind is, why are these types of stories even in the Bible? Just tell us the good stuff in people's lives. We want to hear the positive stories. Don't we live in, in, in that kind of world in North America? We want to hear the, the upbeat stuff. We even have areas of theology called positive thinking. I don't know how much theology it really is. I think it's more man-made, uh, Robert Schuller and uh, who's the latest one, Joel Osteen. And, and we, we always seem to get a new one each generation who said, no, just dwell on the positive. And when they're sat down with an interview, they why don't you ever talk about sin? Well, and then they kind of wriggle in their seats and they don't know quite what to do with it. The scriptures are superintended by God to help you and I to learn from the mistakes of these people. Not just learn so we don't make those mistakes, which is pretty important, but when we do fall, we can learn the steps, the steps that the sinner should go through to be right with God. Now, I don't know how many people in this audience even believe in sin. But we live in a society that really doesn't believe in sin. Sin is not the word of choice. They will use any other kind of vocabulary rather than that dirty three-letter word, sin. But you know, the best thing that you can do with sin is get it out. 
in the open. Get it out. Drag it out. What does Jesus say? If your eye offends you, what should you do? If your hand offends you, what should you do? You know, there have been a, no a number of Christians throughout the centuries who have literally done that. They take their right eye out, they become blind in their right eye. They cut their right hand off, and they no longer, of course, have a right hand. The problem is they still have a left eye and a left hand. Right? Sin is part of our nature. We will see that as we go through this psalm. It's like you and I are born to, to rebel at some point. This is a big one that we're talking about today with David. He's shaming God. He's shaming his family. He's shaming himself. I don't know what on earth the family of Uriah must have thought about all of this. And the whole nation, of course, wondering, well, if he can do that, maybe I can get away with it too. Who knows how it must have devastated that community. And hey, these were the people that were supposed to be setting an example. These were the people that were showing what God is really like so that people would be drawn to him. God was going to use the nation of Israel to evangelize the whole world. Kind of sounds like what we think of the Seventh-day Adventist church, doesn't it? Could be the problem of the Seventh-day Adventist church. Could sin be the problem of the Seventh-day Adventist church? Could sin be the problem why the Seventh-day Adventist church doesn't move forward the way God wants it to? Is sin the problem in your life why you don't get excited and passionate about the things of God and sharing the faith? Let each person examine themselves. Let's see how David deals with this. So he wants something to be blotted out. What does he want to be blotted out? His transgressions. What does he want washed away? His iniquity. Read the scripture here. And cleanse me from what? My sin, verse 2. For I know my transgressions. My sin is always before me against you. You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you approve right when you speak and justified when you judged. Paul has a text in Romans that is very similar to that one. So sin is primarily, as we said a moment ago, against God. We say sin is against the law, but the law is just an expression of the heart of God. So if you want to know what God's heart is like, what his character is like, well, maybe you could get that through uh, an exposition of the law. Even better, you would get it through the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. So when we sin against God as a believer now, David was a believer, when we sin against God, we wound the heart of our best friend. Jesus says, I now call you friends. We're on an intimate basis with God as a believer, right? Not sure about that? To me, that's one of the glories of Christianity. It's what's emphasized over and over again that we can have this close, personal relationship with God, a sense of the presence of God, intimacy. Do you remember in the Old Testament tabernacle, tabernacle system, you had, you had things like the investigative judgment, which 
which uh, would blot out the sins of the whole nation on that special day. And, it, and really the idea behind it is, is to talk about sin being cleansed away and closeness with God. And the, and the people were supposed to search their hearts and make sure that they were doing everything to be right with God on that particular day. And when the priest did whatever the priest was expected to do and emerged from the presence of God, everyone had a big sigh of relief and they rejoiced. They rejoiced in the good news of grace, the good news of mercy, the good news of forgiveness. So the gospel is supposed to give us that, but sin kind of messes things up. It gets in the way. It's, it's a barrier between the way God wants to work in our lives and the kind of people that we are supposed to be. So here, here we're going in through this process of, of the believer falling into sin and how it's be, it needs to be processed. Surely I was sinful. From when? Now don't tell me that babies commit sins. Right? <clears throat> Sin is when you <clears throat> make a choice. David had the choice to look out the window or not. Well, maybe that wasn't much of a choice. What's, what harm is there looking out in the window? But then he sees a naked woman. What's a red-blooded man to do when he sees a naked woman? Especially if she's dead, drop, drop dead. Let me say this right here. Gorgeous. Well, what do you do? Because every day on the TV, you have women paraded before you, men paraded before you, who are absolutely great specimens of physical beauty, right? Oh, you don't watch TV. All right then, so let's go on to another point. Some of your halos are slipping a little bit here, I think. Don't we have to make those choices every day of our lives? So yes, you can choose to put certain literature away and turn off certain programs, and you do need to make those choices. And if that's hard for some of you, God will give you the ability to do that. He will give you the power to do that. It's one of the reasons why the Holy Spirit is placed in our lives, not just to convict us of when we're doing wrong, but to give us the power to do what is right. But it does mean that some things need to be put away. In David's situation, it was, it was gawking at this woman. If he would have looked once and got on with uh, reading his state papers we wouldn't even be having this discussion now. But then, of course, there would have been some other sin that Satan was, was tempting him with that would have been just around the corner. So there are certain things that we can stop doing. But what we cannot stop doing and what we cannot give ourselves are the deeper things. Because when we look at sin, we make a huge mistake if we just talk about David and Bathsheba on the surface. If we just deal with sin as an external thing, as something that I do or something that people see, then we will really miss the whole point. 
And of course, in the first century with Jesus, that's exactly the religious leaders, exactly what they did. Take your Bible and keep your finger in Psalms 51. Go to Luke 18. I've been thinking of preaching on Luke 18 for a while. It's kind of been rolling around in my head. But at least I can sow the seed here with you. Maybe we'll make it into a sermon down the road. Luke 18. One thing we can say for sure, human nature never changes. It might be dressed up in different garb and different dress, and within the cultures we can find certain things tempting one culture and different things tempting another culture. But the sinful human heart never changes unless God changes it here. So here we have, um, in verse 9, it's called the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. To some who were confident, this is cluing you in so you don't miss the point of this parable, to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. Now make it clear, because so, we all don't understand the historical context here. The Pharisees were the religious leaders, or at least they were one group, a very important group of religious leaders. In fact, I think in one place, I think Jesus says, paraphrasing, uh, do as they say, but not as they do, something to that, to that effect. So the Pharisees were really important players as far as the religious community was concerned. And, the, and they were the good guys, supposedly, in quotes, and the bad guys were people like the tax collectors, right? So just kind of have that in mind when we look at this. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. Well, there, there's a clue right there. Right there. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, the really bad ones, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all that I get. And when it says he fasts twice a week and gives this tenth, that's sincere, that's genuine, that's really what Pharisees did and a whole lot more. So we're not saying Pharisees didn't do what we would call good works. They did a whole bunch of them. But that's really not the point. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He wouldn't even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me. Isn't that what David prayed in Psalms 51? Right at the beginning, he, he, he fell on the mercy of God. That's, what, that's the only thing the sinner can do. God, have mercy on me, a what? A sinner. Now, we're all sinners, but here's one man admitting it, and here's another man thinking he's super righteous. And I tell you, Jesus says that this man, rather than the other, the one who said he was a sinner, went home justified. Justification by faith. Here it's coming from, from the mouth of Jesus, not from the mouth of Paul. Justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And who could be more exalted than David high on the throne? with everything at his fingertips. If he wants something, he gets it. Puffed up, proud, self-confident, self-righteous. And it took a year and the confrontation with the prophets. And don't be surprised when you're reading the prophets in the Bible or in the writings of Ellen White if you're convicted of sin. It's not the worst thing in the world to be convicted of sin. It's a very good thing if it leads you to confession 
and to renewing your vows and your relationship with God. Okay, where were we? Psalms 51. How did we ever get out of there? So back we go. Psalms 51. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. No children, babies, infants don't commit acts of sin, but they have a nature that given time will be shown to be in rebellion against God. In other words, they don't have, at least they don't have a nature that will always do right, for sure. And any of you that have had children know what I'm talking about. And hey, you've been children yourself, whether you can remember it or not. Isn't it interesting that there's a, there's a certain point in our childhood that we can no longer remember? Don't know why that is. Maybe we just blank certain things out. Sinful from the time that my mother conceived me, surely you desire truth in the inner parts. That really is a key statement. And the translation here is not, they're not always sure how to translate certain Hebrew words. So I don't know if this is the best translation or not, but we can definitely say that God just doesn't want external righteousness, but he wants inter internal purity and righteousness too. So this goes very, very deep. And sometimes it's hard to find language that people, so people can follow what, what I think God really wants to help us to understand. Cleanse me with hyssop, I'll be clean. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. He's not had that for a whole year. Let the bones that you have crushed rejoice. Spiritual, metaphorical language. It's like being crushed. It's like being put in the grinder when you don't get this stuff out and confess it and own it. Nobody wants to own sin anymore. It's always someone else's problem, someone else's responsibility. But the sooner that you and I own our sin is the sooner that we can be the great men and God that wants us to be. We all sin. We all fall short of the glory of God. It's kind of like the way Paul writes that. It's a no-brainer. We all should realize that. Now, we live in a society that does not realize that. And sometimes in the church, I really wonder whether we realize that or not. We should, because there's many texts that say it, but in our experience, do we really realize how riddled through with sin we are? I'm not so sure about that. I think we're very quick to justify some of our sinful behavior. And by the way, it should be very clear from what we just looked at in Luke 18, that a lot of our sinful nature is sometimes stuff that we think is okay. Someone said, anything that gets between me and God becomes an idol, becomes sin. It could be something quite innocent. Maybe you're spending too much time watching TV, reading the newspapers, don't you think that when you and I expose ourselves, which you really have to do to some extent, I guess you could, you could get a hut somewhere and with no electricity and no TV and, and no, no anything and just kind of hide away, but you'll still have your sinful, sinful heart. That will follow you everywhere you go. 
But when this, this stuff comes our way, you're going to need to guard the avenues of the soul. We're expected to do that as Christians. We're not expected to allow Satan to bombard. Or, you know, sometimes I hear Seventh Day Adventists say, well, I, I wish Hollywood would clean up its act. Huh? Since when has Hollywood ever claimed to be Christian? And even those that claim to be Christian, whether they be churches or individuals, sometimes are extremely suspect because they seem to be more concerned about the things of this world than the things of God. But we need to guard the avenues of the heart. Proverbs, we have many statements in Proverbs that say that. In fact, Proverbs 4.23 talks about the heart as being the center of the human spirit from which spring emotions, thoughts, motivations, courage, actions, the wellsprings of life. Proverbs 4.23, guard the avenues of the heart. All of Scripture talks about that. Cleanse me with hyssop, I'll be clean. Wash me, I'll be whiter than snow. Let me hear the joy and gladness that your bones have crushed, rejoice, hide your face from my sins, and blot out, there it is again, blot out my iniquity. Then there's a prayer for something else. Not just a a confession of sin, not just exploring the depths of sin, certainly not placing the blame on his mother giving him birth or anything like that, but now a prayer for purity. You and I don't just want to have the record erased, do we? That's the negative. Take something away. We want the positive to be put in there. We want the purity. What did Jesus say in Matthew 5, verse 8? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. So here it's creating me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. So as you mature as a Christian, your prayer life should change. Maybe when you're an infant Christian, you're saying, well, forgive me for this and forgive me for that. But you'll get to a point as you grow in Christ where you'll start saying, Lord, I want to be pure within. And your spirit can do that. This is the power of the gospel. Paul said it's the power of God to salvation. What does salvation mean? Salvation means health. Salvation means wholeness. Salvation means being fully human. It's multifaceted. It's not, it does not just mean this is, this is a, an American problem. The biblical message, it means wholeness. It does not mean just forgiveness of sin. You know, if you look at Christianity in this country, you think Christianity is about getting your sins forgiven and squeezing through those pearly gates. You won't find that in the Bible. What you find in the Bible is a message of restoration. What is lost in Eden is to be restored in this life and in the future life. And God in his wisdom has chosen not to give us a glorified body until Christ comes back. So like it or or lump it, you and I 
have one body, one mind that we have to deal with. And God wants to work through that body and through that mind to give you purity, wholeness, fulfillment. No Christian, and I know it's, it's, this is a strong statement because we can, we can be grown up with people putting us down, beating us up, and abusing us, but no Christian, if they truly understand the, the gospel, should have low self-esteem. If anything should build up your esteem, it is that God has placed his favor upon you. Jesus died for you. God places his Holy Spirit in you. Incredible promises are given to the Christian. We might find them hard to believe, but that doesn't mean to say that they're not real and they're not powerful. Your lack of belief is not going to change the promises of God. So all things are given for us. In our Bible class this morning, uh, Lisa says, well, God is for us. Well, that's a very strong theme in, in the book of Romans. God is for us. He's not against us. So let's be all that we can be because he is for us. It's interesting that he mentions the Holy Spirit here. One of the uh, two times that this phrase is used in the whole Old Testament. So obviously it's very, very important, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who brings you to God. He calls you, he woos you, he draws you. Ellen White says he allures you. Or maybe that's my, my interpretation. But the Spirit brings you to God. He keeps you in God. And if you start to stray with sin, God has... Do you think between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they don't know how to get you on track? We almost insult God when we think and talk that way. God will bring through your conscience, through many different ways conviction, even if it takes a year, better to take a year and have genuine repentance than to have an initial confession that was not genuine. When the bones are crushed, when you've been put through the grinder, praise God for that. Though it's very unpleasant, praise God for it. If it brings, at the end of the day, genuine, genuine repentance. And I tell you something, God can bring good out of evil. That's the theme, again, in the book of Romans. Here we're seeing it right here, I believe. And if we had time and went into Psalms 32, it would become maybe a little bit clearer. But God doesn't want anyone to sin. But when we do sin, if we do sin, when we do sin, surely he wants us to grow out of that negative experience. He can turn the negative into a positive. In other words, David can become more sensitive to the ways of God. David can become more sensitive to the ways of man. And if you read Ellen White's account of this, that's exactly what she says happened to him. But of course, there are consequences. We saw that in 2 Samuel. Don't miss that. Don't think that you and I can sin and, and just there are no consequences for it. There are always Someone always pays a price for sin. The basic teaching is that Jesus paid the price at Calvary. So when you sin against Jesus, you're sinning against your best friend. You're wounding the heart of the one who died for you. We're not under the law as far as the condemnation of the law. That's really not the best way to look at Christianity. 
but it's much worse to wound your wife than it is to run a red light. Anyway, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Great grant me a willing spirit. That's, a, that's maturity right there. Lord, not my will be done. My genes, my flesh craves for something. Right? You know what I'm talking about? Come on, folks. You know, as a Christian who's born again, what it is to crave for something that's not in, not in your best interest. The remnants of sin are there. They always will be there until Christ comes. There's no holy flesh until Jesus comes. That's what we call glorification. That's the perfection, the sinlessness that so many of you crave. That's ultimately when it's going to happen. In the meantime, is it possible for you and I to live the pure, holy Jesus life in its fullness? Not just externally. Yes, we go to church on a certain day. We, we keep commandments in a certain wouldn't dream of stealing anybody's spouse away from, away from them. But internally. See, we don't all believe that. But I believe the Bible and this psalm is trying to help us to understand. This is an internal process. Thinking, actions, desires, motivation. Is it possible to get to a point where we can so identify with God that His thoughts start to become our thoughts? His desires are desires. A mature Christian will pray for that reality in this world before glorification, realizing at the same time the closer you come to Christ, the more time you genuinely spend with Him is the more you will see your defects. As the light gets brighter and brighter and brighter, the more you will see how far short you fall of the glory of God. Let's wrap this up. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will turn back to you. So there's a teaching element here in the Psalms. It's not just about you and I figuring it all out and getting so perfectly well-adjusted with God, aligned with God. Because sometimes they talk of sinners, you're out of alignment. So those of you that are joiners and so on, Jake or any of you that are here, okay, we're brought into alignment. Yeah, but not just for us. It's not just about us. Maybe it's not especially about us. But it's to teach others, to help others. Is it possible that as this psalm was put to music, because the psalms were songs, and the nation is singing about the sins of David. Ah! Whoa, this is tough. But somehow, as they hear about the sins of David, they hear about the mercy and the forgiveness of God. And they hear about this inner purity, not just outer purity. And really, through the mistakes of this man and, and his mistakes being put to music, they're really hearing the gospel. So, practically, how does that affect you and I? Well, 
The best ones to help sinners are those who know from where they've been saved from. And I'm not saying go and spill your guts to the Anderson community or wherever you live. But if you really want to help people, you have to admit that you've been, you've, you've had their problem or you've got their problem. And yes, I've never been an alcoholic, but I do know what a life of alcohol is like, or at least a few years of alcohol. So don't be afraid of getting on, to help get on people's wavelength, admitting that you're no better than them. Maybe you're worse than them. And it will draw them to you. And by drawing them to you, this is a teaching moment now, through your mistakes, through your sins, here's how God treated me. The teaching moment is you draw people to God. They realize that, that here's, here's somebody that's, that's been where I've been, and God has been where I've been, and God has taken them past that point. And then maybe they will come to the Lord Jesus Christ too. That's how I see the Old Testament was supposed to be. The nation of Israel, they weren't to go around with their pomp and ceremony, with all their fancy robes and, and their religiosity. No, they were to, to show that they were a nation saved by grace, by mercy, the forgiveness of God, and then share that with the world. And when this good news of the gospel becomes a self-centered thing, then the manna decays and it stinks. It's not God's purpose for Israel and certainly not God's purpose for the Christian church. Let's pray. Gracious Father, thank you so much for the life of David, for his good points and his bad points. But most of all, we thank you for the wonderful Holy Spirit. He didn't want the Holy Spirit to be taken from him, neither do we. We want you to separate us from our sins. We truly want to experience the power, the purifying power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. We want to be everything in the short time we have on this earth, Lord. We want to be everything that Jesus wants us to be. May it become so for your sake, for his sake, for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.